Uh, just so you know, we are recording the meeting. So if you prefer uh, to keep your, um, your, your video off, that's fine. Uh, but we'll start in a couple of minutes. I think we'll, we'll start. Um, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Professor Paolo Drinot. I'm um, based at the Institute of the Americas at University College London. And it's uh, my great pleasure to uh, host this um, event uh, this evening with um, four distinguished speakers uh, who all work on uh, Peru and who are going to help us to think through uh, recent events in Peru uh, as part of this event titled the November 2020 Parliamentary Coup in Peru and Assessment. So I'm going to introduce the speakers very uh, briefly and then uh, hand over to them. Uh, so our speakers include Viviana Baraybar, who is a, a DPhil, DPhil candidate in politics at the University of Oxford. Mercedes Crisostomo, who is an anthropologist and is currently a PhD candidate at the Institute of the Americas at UCL. Alonso Gurmendi, who is an assistant professor at the Universidad del Pacifico and currently also a PhD student in the Laws uh, School here at UCL. And Rafael Novella, who is a development economist and a research fellow at the Institute uh, of Education at UCL. So um, Alonso is going to start off, uh, then we'll hear from Rafael, then Mercedes, and finally uh, Viviana. They're all going to touch on different aspects of the recent crisis. Alonso. Thank you, Paolo. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here with, uh, with all of you to discuss this um, concerning set of events. I think we all had very eventful, a very eventful week <laughs> trying to figure out what was going to happen and things changed in a very fluid um, fashion. Um, so where I wanted to start um, was to go through a little bit of, of the, the facts of what happened and also how those facts can be properly interpreted through the, through the eyes of law and particularly Peruvian constitutional law. So where, where I want to start is that when this crisis first popped up in the journals, uh, particularly English speaking journals, they translated the term of what had happened as an impeachment. The main news outlets out there said the president of Peru, Peru Martin Vizcarra, has been impeached and has been uh, replaced by the Speaker of the House, Manuel Merino. Um, and as, as you'll know, the, the facts of the case are basically that Merino replaced Vizcarra. And after that, Merino resigns and is now replaced by President Sagasti. So in that very simple set of facts, that, that small chain of three presidents in one week, there is a very complex constitutional debate in Peruvian law. Um, one that is about to be resolved by the Peruvian Constitutional Court. So 
let's let's start with the beginning, this issue of impeachment, because immediately after the president was, quote unquote, impeached, hundreds and thousands of people took to the streets to protest what they called not an impeachment, but actually a parliamentary coup. Why is that? Because all constitutional law systems have, or well, um, all written constitutional law systems tends to have um, a different set of rules for facts that determine when the president is not there anymore. One possible reason why a president should not be there anymore is because he has been, he or she has been indeed impeached, removed from office because of a political trial based on an impeachable offense. We saw this develop recently in the uh, case of the United States with the impeachment of um, Donald Trump. Uh, but in addition to these uh, impeachment procedures, there are also so-called um, vacancy procedures which is what happened in Peru. Vacancy occurs when given a specific fact, because of a specific fact, the president is no longer able to develop, um, carry out his or her duties as president. So that can be because the president has resigned, has passed away, or has uh, fled the country, as in the case of, of uh, Alberto Fujimori uh, in Peru. Um, or, and this is the key phrase in the Peruvian constitution, suffers from a permanent physical or moral incapacity. So the entire debate was whether this was actually a case of moral incapacity. Congress determined that uh, Martin Vizcarra was morally incapable of ruling the country. And so the question is, is this really the case? Was Vizcarra actually Vac uh, the presidency of Vizcarra was actually vacant at that time? Or was this an abusive interpretation of constitutional law? And we have to frame this particular situation within a broader context. In uh, Latin America, in recent years, there's been a worrisome trend of presidents being deposed through the abusive interpretation of constitutional provisions. It happened to Manuel Zelaya in Honduras in 2009. It happened to uh, Fernando Lugo in Paraguay in 2012. And it happened to um, Juma Rousseff in Brazil in 2016. Um, something similar happened in Peru. So let's, let's try to understand where this idea of moral incapacity comes from. So we understand that it is we understand that it is a, a means to get the presidency vacant. So originally in the 19th century, uh, Peruvian constitutional law incorporated this idea of moral incapacity as a term of art referring to mental disability. The president is unable to perform his or her duties because he or she is mentally disabled and is no longer able to deter determine good from evil and therefore cannot be president, right? So. This idea of mental incapacity for um, the vacancy makes sense. If the president has a physical disability or mental disability and they cannot rule because of that, then the presidency is vacant just as much as if he or she had resigned. This is not meant to be a political trial, as in if you wanted to declare the vacancy of the presidency, you needed a medical certificate, not a political trial. But something happened in, in along the way uh, particularly in 2000, where Alberto Fujimori, former 
president and autocrat of Peru, um, fled the country because of accusations of corruption and also human rights violations and fled to Japan and sent his resignation from Japan to Peru. And Congress, outraged at this um, act, decided that resignation should not be the way through which the presidency should be declared vacant and decided instead to use these, this provision of moral incapacity to say that Fujimori was rather morally incapable of ruling the country as a way of censuring him. This meant that the, the, the meaning of moral incapacity was changing. It was no longer gonna refer to simply mental disability, but now it would incorporate this idea of moral, moral morality. So the question was, was whether this was a, a a precedent that would be used frequently or a one-off to solve a major uh, constitutional crisis. And based on what happened afterwards, it was, based, it was used as a one-off, once-in-a-lifetime solution to a once-in-a-lifetime problem. But the idea of moral incapacity as an issue of morality remained there. Uh, with the Constitutional Tribunal at one point urging Congress to regulate the procedures for how should this procedure of moral incapacity be carried out into the future. And Congress regulated it very um, deficiently, in a very deficient way. So basically what happens in, in, in this new procedure is that morality becomes whatever 87 votes of the Peruvian Congress say it is. And so if you're gonna sanction someone and, and declaring someone should not be president anymore is a sanction under the law. You cannot um, just say that the definition for the punishment is arbitrary. Basically, if you are driving your car and you face a red light, you know that red means stop and that green means go. If you breach that provision, if you go in red, you receive a fine. You know what you should do to not be um, sanctioned. In the case of the term moral incapacity, in the way it was not defined by Congress, there was no legal definition. And so there, it was impossible to defend against such a claim. Anything that happened could be seen as sufficiently immoral to warrant a destitution. So for example, Vizcarra's predecessor, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, faced the threat of this vacancy procedure for reason of having lied to Congress. Um, saying that he did not have uh, links with a specific company when he actually had. There needs to be a certain level of proportionality in the idea of um, vacancy. You cannot remove an elected president based on any um, an, an indefensible argument like you are immoral because the logical answer would be no, I'm not. So legally, this process was very flawed. So when this Congress, this particular Congress, decided to take advantage of that very broad interpretation of how to dispose of a precedent. It was very quickly perceived as an abusive interpretation because this Congress had a lot of um, shady interests and we're gonna hear a lot more about them really soon. Um, but there were interests that were not um, perceived by the population as honest. Um, Biscara had been pushing through reforms on anti-corruption and reforms on um, uh, political reform, and that had angered Congress. So there was an opportunity to gain power 
through an abusive interpretation of the law. And that is basically what happened. And that um, ended up in, in the massive protest that, that, we, that we all saw on social media and on TV. And there is a, a particular pattern on how the protests were repressed uh, and a legal reason behind why these protests became, uh, the, the repression of the protests became so um, egregious in that before, um, before the, the vacancia, the, the vacancy, there was, uh, th this Congress passed a law called the Police Protection Law. And under human rights law, when, you, when the police, where law enforcement agents are gonna use force, they need to comply with a series of requirements. They need to act in self-defense. So uh, they need to act uh, out of a sense of necessity and proportionality, which means that a police officer can only use force to protect someone else or himself or herself from a proportional threat when there are no other means necessary but to use force. Now, these requirements of self-defense, necessity, and proportionality are incorporated into Peruvian law. But this Congress passed a reform called the Police Protection Law of 2020, where the requirement of proportionality was repealed from Peruvian law. So police officers facing protest were under their understanding of their own law, no longer required to respond proportionally to threats. They could respond disproportionately. Of course, through human rights law and through uh, conventionality control based on the uh, case law of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, you can, you can get to the right conclusion and say that eliminating proportionality from the rules relating to the use of force is unconstitutional in Peru. But by the time you get to make that argument, it's already too late. There's already been abuses. So the reaction to this abusive interpretation of constitutional law was, um, was responded by police with an abusive law that does not restrict their acts to proportional responses. So uh, the police used uh, um, tactics that were completely out of line, such as this idea of kettling, of, of encircling a protest fully and blocking them all in, the, in, in one plaza and then gassing them without allowing them to flee. So basically they concentrated all the possible amount, the largest amount of people possible and then gassed them, creating stampedes. Um, and also there were up to, if I remember correctly, at the highest point, uh, around 45 cases of enforced disappearance, disappearance, meaning people who had been detained and nobody knew where they were. So with this background, there has been a case at the Peruvian Constitutional Court that's, uh, that's coming up. The, the decision is already known by most people in, the, in, the, in, the, in society because social media and, you know, it leaked. But um, the general idea is that this procedure of uh, vacancy needs to be better regulated. So what the Constitutional Tribunal is about to say, spoiler alert, um, is that for a president to be removed through vacancy procedures, there needs to be what the Constitutional Tribunal is calling a notorious social imbalance, basically meaning that the president can be, uh, has, has had to lose the support of the streets of the people. And also four-fifths of the Congress needs to decide that this has happened. Um, through a proper investigative um, commission that should be set up by, by, by Congress. So no more of this very 
specious debates in of 130 congressmen that all give different reasons for the vacancy of a president. So uh, this is what's going to come. And so the, the I guess the full circle version of this, the, the interesting thing of all of this is that when you use the reasons, the, the legal standards that the constitutional tribunal is about to set, or that we presume that is going to set, uh, it means that definitely Vizcarra was not, um, it would not have been legal to vacate his position because he had not lost support in the streets and there was no case of social unrest going on. But Merino, the, the, the president who replaced him, could have under those rules. So now uh, what, we're looking to, uh, what we're looking up to right now in, in Peru is what will the new president, Francisco Sagasti, do um, to take this feeling of um, take this feeling that uh, there's been a, a defeat of this of these shady interest in Congress and how to express the, the aspirations for change in the um, in society. So that is the the challenge up ahead. And there there's there's talk about you know a new constitution or or police reform and several different proposals. And the challenge ahead of Peru right now is how to decide with the failed uh, political system that it has right now, how to move forward with these changes and satisfy the aspirations of its people. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Alonso. So uh, we move on now to Rafael. Thank you, Paolo. Uh, I just wanna share my, my screen so you can see I prefer a short presentation. Can you see it now? Yep. So, well, thank you very much for, for being here. Uh, I'm Rafael Novella, I work at UCL, the Institute of Education, and I'm gonna give you a, a slightly different uh, view from, from what happened with, with the queue in Peru last week. So uh, a more economic and social overview of, of, of the problem. Uh, so very briefly, I'm gonna give you a, a, a short overview of the economic and social context of Peru before COVID. And I will slide uh, yeah, with some basic information of, of the context in COVID. I'm gonna focus a bit more on education because I think this is a, a, a main, a main uh, situation that has been uh, in the background of all the protests and all the political instability in the country in the last uh, six years at least. And then a brief discussion of, of the topic. So yes, some of you may know, but Peru has performed quite well in terms of GDP growth in the last three decades. And uh, it has had a, a, an amazing uh, GDP growth uh, that allowed the country to massively reduce poverty rates. So it basically reduced poverty in, in almost 30 percentage points in, in 20 years. That's a massive reduction. And also reduce income inequality, slightly less than, uh, than poverty, but still a considerable amount. And so the, basically the growth and, and the reduction in poverty uh, translate in, a, in an increase in the middle class uh, size. So that increase in, thir in 30 percentage point in the, uh, more or less in the, same, in the same period, in the last two decades. Of course, uh, the, economic, the, the economic context has some negative aspects and it's basically that in the last uh, six years, uh, the GDP growth has slowed down. So we are growing much less than before. In, the, in 2019, growth was only 2%. Two, uh, 2%. Um, 
I told you that middle class has increased, but the main composition of middle class is people who are really vulnerable to, to get back to poverty if they are affected by a negative shock. And, and here where I do some mention to, to COVID. So COVID has made lots of these people go back to, to poverty. Um, that can put us back to, to many years ago in terms of, of the situation of poverty on, on these people. And there is a huge heterogeneity in terms of the good indicator. So if you compare Lima with the other, the capital city with other cities in the, in the country, urban versus rural areas, youth versus adults, women versus men, etc., you just find uh, inequality. So all the all many all these groups uh, find a, a much uh, worse conditions. And a very important point here is that the country has improved this GDP and, and poverty uh, mainly because a, a really serious uh, management of the economy, like independence of the central bank, but also because of a very uh, optimistic scenario in terms of the price of commodities. So the country hasn't been able to improve uh, the productivity of the, of the factors and mainly the human capital factors. Like they have in, we haven't improved human capital in the country, the, the skills that people uh, have. So, right, so, okay, a bit, a bit more about the labor market. The country is mainly informal, say almost 80% of, of workers in the country doesn't, uh, doesn't contribute to social security and it's high, but the rate of unemployment is really high. And is the situation for youth, for example, is much worse. So these indicators are, are like high, the difference between adults and youth and employment, for instance, is three times larger for youth than for adults. And this fact of informality, underemployment and unemployment also coincide with firms doesn't find, like firms don't find the, the, the people with the right set of skills of when they want to hire new people. So there is a disconnection between the labor demand and the labor supply. And in, in, a, in a country that work, where the educational system worked quite well, that shouldn't, shouldn't happen, right? So I, I start focusing here on education and skills. So the country has been quite successful in increasing the access to, to basic education, and, but still quality is the main issue. Uh, we as a country perform really badly in this uh, international standardized tests, like for instance, the OECD, PISA and PIAC, uh, shows that Peru is in a very bad situation across the whole bunch of country that takes uh, these, these tests, but also within the region and, and with um, comparison, comparing it with countries with a similar GDP per capita, for instance. So basically our students and, and the adults in the country doesn't perform well in any of the reading, maths or science tests. And of course, these uh, present some uh, limitations for productivity and growth and development in, in the country. And here I make a focus on, on tertiary education, as I told you, because I think, uh, as I, uh, again, as I, as I mentioned, this is part of the, of the main problem uh, of the country and, and that may have been a part of the cause of the, of the coup and, and the interpretation of many uh, ministry, ministers in, in the last uh, seven, seven years. So 
just to give you a figure, in the, in, since 2014, we have had seven ministers of education, so less than one per year. Um, and, and there is uh, many uh, evidence that there are congressmen who are behind the education uh, business, and they have personal interest for not improving the educational quality in the country that will allow us to solve part of the problems I, I presented you before. So uh, just a bit of an example, like one third of uh, graduates from basic, basic education in the country go to tertiary education. And two thirds of them go to, to universities and one, one third go to technical institutions. Um, the constitution in Peru, uh, in comparison to other countries in, in, in Latin America, allows uh, 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 firms for profit to, to, to get involved in the university market. So they, uh, they are allowed to enter in a really high revenue market and one with really large demand. So there is still preference by people, by households to engage in, in tertiary education in universities rather than technical education, for instance. So that, that have, have caused that the number of universities in the country has increased massively in the last 20 years. So we have increased in almost, we have almost doubled the, the number of universities in the last 20 years. However, only one third of these for-profit universities have a quality certification. So that's a, a, a huge a quality issue, right? So you are selling these young people the idea that universities are really interesting and, and profitable uh, idea, but then when they face the labor market, they, they basically find really bad quality jobs, lower paid or either, or even in unemployment. And in, to, in 2014, before like with, with uh, Ollanto Malas president, so, I don't know how many presidents ago already. We, the, the Ministry of Education, Jaime Saavedra, started uh, designing and implementing an education reform. And, and they create the SUNEDU, which is a, it's an institution for supervising the quality of education through universities. And SUNEDU has been the focus of many interpolations in the, in the Congress and has been under attack almost since, since its creation. So, um, and as I said, there is mm, plenty of evidence that there are congressmen who have been uh, founded by uh, universities who not necessarily have obtained this quality certification. The other part why this is interesting for the, why the tertiary education uh, evidence is interesting for, for understanding, understanding the political situation of last week in the country is that this affects mainly youth and their families. And one thing that, at least in the news, has, has been shown is that there was, the response of youth people has been, has been massive. So it's, it has been a, a, a response on the streets in manifestations against the, the authoritarian uh, regime, mainly driven by, by youth. So. I, I don't, I'm not claiming that this is the only reason, but I guess it's, my guess is this is an, a very important one. So yes, a bit of, of discussion. I, I think in the country, there is a large disconnection between the, the demand, so what the firms want and the supplies of skills, what edu the education primary 
secondary and tertiary education offer. So uh, we have a, a mismatch there, like workers and people are not being prepared for the demand. And they basically are uh, located in, in really well, bad quality jobs or jobs that doesn't improve productivity, growth and development in the country. And there is also this connection between students' expectations uh, and the labor market. And this is a frustration comes with a large debts. So tertiary education is not for free, particularly in these non-profit universities. So you have a, it's not that, it's not only that you, you are offered something that you don't get in the labor market, but also you, you end up with a, with a lot of money to pay. So that's, that creates frustration. And, and as a country, we need to protect those institutions as UNEDU, the ministries of education, like trying to push for these reforms and, and creating mechanisms for, for trying to protect uh, them. Also, I, I think like this is a more structural policy. We think we, we need to change the view that a university is the only way for, for obtaining a, a successful uh, path in the labor market. We need to off start offering more information for people to take decisions and also considering other type of information of, of training for for performing in the labor market. And this is where the uh, public policy can, can intervene. So uh, thank you very much. And as I mentioned, I, I think youth play a very big role in the, in the reactions to the coup. And one of the reasons behind this, it may be connected with frustration for a bad education system and how the Congress has attacked the reforms in the last few years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rafael. And uh, so we continue with Mercedes Crisostom. Uh, you need to unmute Mercedes. Now, do you yep. hear? Okay, thank you. So. Uh, good. Uh, no, Mercedes, we can't hear you. Now? Now, yes. Yeah, I don't know what is happening, but wait. I will start again. Okay, good afternoon. Thank you for attending this uh, conversation. It is hard to be so far away from Peru now. My thoughts are with my compatriots. Compatriots who from the very first moment react not only against the arbitrary impeachment of the former president, but also reject the illegal ele election of Merino as president. 
I'm going to describe the diverse collective actions which Peruvians around the country have deployed since November 9th, mobilizations that seems to be the biggest Peru has ever had. Hence, here I can only give you an idea of this massive protest. My uh, talk will cover the following. What were the first responses, spontaneous responses? What are the acciones autoconvocadas, spontaneous uh, calls, reactions? Uh, who are the protesters? Why are they protesting? And what are their strategies? So uh, the first spontaneous reaction happened in the evening of 9th November after the outset of this carra, when Carlos Zeta, a young fellow, hit a congressman in the face while he was declaring to a television channel. This congressman was one of the 105 who voted in favor of the impeachment, as the picture showed. Uh, although Carlos Zeta was detained, his action went viral on the social networks and in the mass media. People even talk about him as a national hero. Despite his violent action, his anger and indignation represented the Peruvians' feelings, what Peruvians were feeling at that moment. Simultaneously, even risking their lives because of the pandemic, people living in Lima, Arequipa, Trujillo, and Cusco took to the streets to protest. They carry Peruvian flags, probably as a symbol of their commitment to the country. Then began the acciones autoconvocadas, which are a spontaneous calls to march in protest. Different groups coordinate these, calling, these calls using social networks such as TikTok, Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. Protesters also perform the cacerolazos, which consists in beating pots and pans to produce massive noise. Thus, these cacerolazos strongly increase the size of the demonstrations, since even children and grandparents were protesting from their homes. I am included in the under these autoconvocal actions to the two national marches of November 12 and 14, since it, they organizers label both marches such. Although protesters of the first national march reported extreme violence of the police, the ones who participate on the second national mobilization of November 14 clearly witnessed the most violent police repressions of recent years whereas the police use rubber bullets, tear gas guns, pepper strikes, firearms to disperse the mobilization. Protesters use stones, laser lights, and all types of materials as shields. Hundreds of protesters were injured. Many were hospitalized and are still there. Two protesters, Inti Sotelo and Jack Pintado, died in the mobilization as a result of the police brutality. Some demonstrators were arbitrarily detained for two or three days. One of them is still listed as disappeared. But not only were protesters wounded, national and international journalists, the ombudsman officers, and first aid brigades were also attacked by the police. For Peruvians, massive social mobilizations are not new. Peruvians have gained rights, policies, and reforms by marching. Similarly, similarly school and university students' mobilizations have a long history. What is new in the demonstrations of the 10 past days are the organizers, their types of mobilization, and their strategies, 
within these mobilizations, I have identified at least four new characteristics. First, in Peru, social mobilizations usually are led by groups such as unions or human rights organizations or anti-authoritarian movements such as the Noah Keiko movement. However, they didn't organize the recent protest. They certainly participate, but they have not led them. This is a huge change for the Peruvian civil society groups and collective actors. Instead, mostly urban young people from diverse social backgrounds were the protagonists. Most of them are university or higher education students. Among them, among them between them, it is possible to identify feminist groups, teenagers' organizations, K-popers, TikTokers, skaters, communities who march in the front line using their skates as shields, football club members, human rights organizations, environmental activists. Second, their degree of organization is impressive considering the little time they have to do that. They have created not only alternative ways to protest, but also new types of organization within the protest, like the, for example, the yellow line brigades, which help elderly and children who get stuck between the clashes of the police and the protesters. First aid and medical brigades will help injured people. Groups who donate face coverings and water. There are also there were also brigades to disactivate tear gas bombs. A young woman, member of this brigade, in an interview to a national radio program, said. We are the generation that does not drop bombs, but disactivates them. She said this in clear opposition to those young people who during the internal armed conflict engaged in armed groups. She disactivated around 20 to 25 bombs using artisanal materials such as plastic cones, water with bicarbonate. She also said that her group learned to disactivate the bombs in the marches and by watching videos on the internet and by observing the Chilean marches of the recent months. By saying that, she placed her actions as part of a Latin American commitment to gain and build better societies and real democracies. Third, another new strategy was that decentralized mobilization, which allowed the participation of people of all ages who, because of the pandemic, couldn't go to the main protest sites. So it was possible to see entire families protesting in the parks and main avenues close to their homes in Lima, as in the cities of all around the country. These decentralized protests also helped to disperse the police force to control or repress these mobilizations. In contrast to Lima, in other uh, departments, Traditional organizations led the marches and marched together with new spontaneous protesters. In Cusco, for example, these were the cases of the University Student Federation and the Workers' Federation of Cusco. Protesters also threw stones and red paint to the Acción Popular Office, the Merinos political party in Cusco. It is another photo of the marches of Cusco. And in Ayacucho, for example, uh, very no human rights and social organizations took part in diverse mobilizations. 
Furthermore, people organize marches in province and in small districts around the country. For example, this is a photo of a march in one province of Cusco, Kisticano. In contrast, and this is another protest in a remote district of Lima. In contrast to, the, to other departments, since the very beginning, protesters in Lima were heavily repressed. Four, as I have suggested, protesters deploy new ways of protesting. For example, they project message on the buildings as the Chilean did in October during the last year. Peruvian protesters even project a picture of Merino in his own apartment building. The question is, why do they protest? The initial motivation was to show their opposition to the impeachment of the former president and to the election of a new discredited president. Recent interviews to some protesters also show that they mobilized because they feel outraged, they want to defend democracy, Others said that they wish to remember the two young men who were assassinated. The agenda of the protester has changed over days. Since they achieved their initial aim, which was the destitution of Merino, now they are marching to reclaim justice for the two murdered students to protest against journalists who discredit their mobilization, to act for the reform of the police, and so on. Rephrasing the sociologist Alberto Melucci, when he discussed the Latin and manifest dimensions of social movements, and looking at these massive mobilizations, I have the feeling that these young protesters are tired of what we Peruvians have accepted as normal and overlooked for so long. For instance, they are marching now against particular reporters and mass media who produce fake news distort facts and slander progressive politicians and social actors with total impunity. Protesters are also marching against police violence, which is something many Peruvian, poor Peruvian people experience daily. Rephrasing Melucci, this also could be part of the manifest dimension which motivates social mobilizations. I also consider that it is important to discuss to what extent the pandemic and its effects on the health and education system has a role on these mobilizations. The pandemic has unveiled deep structural problems of the Peruvian state and also has shown that despite the mantra of the neoliberalism as a solution towards economic and social problems, and despite the sustained economic growth, Many Peruvians still live in extreme poverty and are trapped in enormously disadvantaged situations. I know protesters have not phrased their demands questioning the structural problems of the country, but I realize it is necessary to reflect on what extent the pandemic is part of the Latin dimension which have driven the young Peruvians to protest. These mobilizations are evidences of the disconnection between the political parties and the population. A recent national survey of the Institute of Estudios Peruanos suggests that 91% of those interviewed are against the impeachment of Vizcarra. In particular, 94 of the young interview people reject that action. A report produced by the Bicentenary Project and a state uh, agency and state commission 
stated that young people identified corruption as the main reason for their lack of development. Following Alberto Melucci, it is important to understand that these massive mobilizations are signs and messages, not only to, not only of the social discontent, but also of, of an urgent need of real and fundamental changes. The newly elected president in his first discourse congratulate these bicentenary generations as the protesters have been named for their commitment to democracy and to the country. However, conservative actors linked to the Peruvian right and even to radical right groups inspired by their own particular dogmatism have argued that these mobilizations are promoted and carried out by terrorists and radical leftists. They are using their social networks and mass media channels to slander not only the protesters, but also the two young students that the police keep. This is nothing new. They are accustomed to, dis to discrediting and undermining all social sectors that dare to question neoliberalism. Finally, it was not my intention to present you with a final account of the collective actions that young male and female Peruvians are doing right now. I am not sure for how long they will protest, but as Alain Turay and other sociologists have suggested, social movements actions are always unfinished. A 17-year-old girl interviewed for a newspaper said, it is not enough that they have given us a new president who has a more suitable profile than Merino. There are many more things we need to change. There are more issues for which to fight. We have realized that if we unite, together we can achieve more things. If the change is not now, when will it be? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mercedes. Uh, okay, so we continue now with Viviana. Yes, thank you. Can you see the presentation now? Yeah, okay. Hi, I'm Viviana. I'm doing my DPhil in politics at the University of Oxford. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the implication of this school in general. Like it's a still a, a developing process. So most of the things I'm going to talk about are, have been either touched by the previous presentations or are very general in the sense that we are not sure what is going to happen. The first point is uh, the university reform, which, as mentioned, is one of the key underlying issues of this crisis. University reform that established the National Superintendency of Higher Education in 2014 has been strongly debated since its creation and even before that. Um, and the main issue with this reform was that it prohibited the formation of new uh, universities until the licensing process of the existing one was done until the um, standards of quality for the existing universities were met or the universities were disbanded. And it's interesting to notice that even as early as 2016, uh, Antero Flores Arauz, who became prime minister of this temporary authoritarian government, which lasted six days, uh, was opposed to this reform, saying that it was um, against the academic autonomy of universities. And the reason why this is particularly interesting is because if you see how the parties voted in the vacancy process for Viscara, most of the, of the votes 
in favor of the vacancy came for, from parties that had a very high interest in taking down the educational reform, especially uh, Acción Popular, Somos Perú, APP, FREPAP, and Unión por el Perú, because what they wanted was the creation of um, six new universities. This was the, their first action as soon as the cabinet was established and the Merino government was in place. They it, um, tried to pass a proposal to discuss the, the implementation of universities and to stop the, um, the process of disbanding universities that didn't meet the quality standards uh, through the reform. And a very interesting and kind of funny, sad anecdote is like, if you see this image here, this is the one of the branches of the University Telesub. You can see that outside, it looks like it's completely built and behind it's completely empty. Telesub was the university that gave um, Merino his degree and also was one of the universities that was uh, benefited by their uh, tries to take down the reform because they were, uh, Telesub was one of the universities that didn't meet the quality standards. Um, another thing that the Congress did, and it's not being talked about as much as this um, try to create, um, try, to, try to create new universities which didn't pass and they, because of the protest and everything that uh, took place, they agreed to postpone this, um, this discussion. Uh, but another thing that they did and did pass and is still in place is that the Educational Commission of the Congress um, agreed for the grant, uh, automatic granting of baccalaureate for university graduates in, two, uh, in the uh, 2020 period. They wanted to make it uh, automatic for everyone between 2019 and 2022, but they uh, at the end they agreed to do it only for 2020, um, supposedly because of the pandemic, but also this was something that was in place before the whole educational reform. And one of the things that the reform did was uh, to establish the standards and to require an, uh, an investigation or an, uh, kind of like research work before you obtain the baccalaureate. This still has to be discussed or to see whether it's going to be um, overruled or ignored or we're going to forget and it's going to be in place for this year. So that's something that is uh, under discussion right now. Another thing that was very scary for a while was the Constitutional Tribunal because uh, six of the seven uh, judges were up for election, um, but they have been up for election for a very long while, which is a thing that is important to understand. Like in Peru, the, the election of the Constitutional Tribunal, normal, of the magistrates for the Constitutional Tribunal normally takes a long while, while way longer than one would expect um, the their terms of the six uh, judges that were up for like uh, were up for election uh, ended in June of last year, and we still haven't chosen new ones. The big fear was that this de facto government was going to try um, com and complete the process of election and then take over the constitutional tribunal. Um, the good thing is that. After the, the progress and mobilization, it seems that they um, changed their mind and the electoral process for the new magistrates was paralyzed. And the special commission that has to elect the candidates was disbanded. And so the process is still paused. Um, 
Now, this is something that has already been uh, touched by the previous presentations, but again, permanent moral incapacity is something that is still uh, under debate and undefined on the, on, on the today because the um, Constitutional Tribunal is supposed to give the final decision today, hopefully. So uh, the thing with permanent, uh, permanent moral incapacity is that it's declared by, by Congress. So even in the constitution, it's not a physical thing, but a political thing. Um, the thing is like, also there is no vacancy by moral incapacity for any other elected position. It's only for the presidency. Um, even though the Congress cannot be dissolved during the last year of a presidential period, this does not apply for, um, for the permanent moral incapacity of the president. Uh, because this, um, this term was going to be under debate and also the state, um, the, the executive under Biscara had done a, a, a lawsuit against, against the interpretation of permanent moral incapacity for the first um, process of vacancy. It was thought that the new interim government on, of Merino was going to try to either desistimate that lawsuit or affect the process. Um, there was one moment in which um, the then Minister of Just, uh, Justice, Delia Munoz, asked the General Prosecutor of the State, Daniel Soria, to resign. The thing is that they thought that if Daniel Soria resigned, they could put someone new and that someone new could um, just, the prosecutor was going to be the, the um, defendant for the executive. So they thought that someone new was just going to um, take down the demand that, that was going to be over, um, that was done. But the thing is like, it was not even um, Daniel Soria, the one that has, had to defend the, the executive in this process. It was Luis Huerta. And also Daniel Soria refused to resign and went to the press uh, accusing both the minister and uh, the government of trying to interfere with the process. So yesterday, both the executive and the Congress presented their arguments. It was good that it was yesterday and not earlier because if not the executive and the Congress will have been the same thing. Um, for Luis Huerta, the one that was representing the executive, the vacancy process was unconstitutional. Um, he argued that vacancy was being used arbitrarily and as a political tool, while Manuel Peña Cabrera, which was the prosecutor in charge of defending the parliament and the Congress, um, argue that the lawsuit must, must be declared in, inadmissible because the conflict no longer exists. Uh, the lawsuit was initially in place for the first process of, process of vacancy, which did not pass uh, because the motion was rejected by the Congress. And because this, this lawsuit was in place for this vacancy request, uh, Peña Cabrera argues that then there is no object of conflict because the motion was not approved. Um, the second point of his argument is that in case the lawsuit was declared valid, like applied for both process of vacancy, which seems to be the, the, what, is to, what is going to happen now, uh, Peña asked for the application to not be retroactive. So to not apply for things that have happened previously. We still don't know what is going to happen with the constitutional tribunal, but as we have as as we have seen, um, there are a lot of like filtrations and information around. And one of the things that is um, 
almost certain is that both process could be declared unconstitutional, but Vizcarra will not be reinstated. They are also um, discussing raising the, the, need, the needed votes for vacancy from 87 to uh, 104, which is one less than the 105 they got for um, this vacancy. Um, there is a still not a certainty on, with, on how they're going to effectively define moral incapacity and how is it going to apply from now on. So another thing that is going to have to be discussed eventually because it's, it's going to take place on December the 30th date on discuss it is the pension system. As <clears throat> some of you may know, Peru is a mixed system with um, private pensions and state-run pension funds. Um, and there has been some, some laws and so, some norms that allow the withdrawal of money from private pension funds uh, because of the pandemic and because of the economic need of many of the people. But there was a measure that was refused uh, initially to um, allow for the withdrawal of the whole pension fund or for the withdrawal of a huge amount of the pension fund if the person in case has not been, had not been working for the past 12 months. One of the things that uh, Merino and Flores Arauz did in their very brief tenure as head of state was to pass a law that allowed this. And the law was published on November 18 after Merino resigned but it was signed by Berino and Arauz, Flores Arauz on November 15th, one day before they both resigned. Um, this is one of the things that is going to be under discussion soon because if the law is not derogated, then the process for, for, for withdrawals will start on December the 3rd. <coughs> Sorry. Another point that is going to be very important for this um, transitory government and um, for what is going to happen in the next few weeks is going to be the police and what to do about the police abuse and whether this trans transition government has the faculties to implement a reform for the police or they should just find the responsibles and then wait for the next elected government to implement a reform. <clears throat> so as mentioned, there is this thing, the law of police protection, like the protection policial, which was approved by the Congress in March of 2020 and signed by Merino. It both eliminated the criterion of proportionality and also tried to impose a modification of the <coughs> Código Procesal Penal in order to prohibit the preemptive detention of police officers to cause injury or death in the exercise of the, their, their functions. And this is obviously unconstitutional, but in, in face of what has happened in the past few days is something that is going to be need, uh, need to discuss more. But an interesting point is that um, the people don't, the majority of the people don't consider that the police were sole responsible, so the main responsibles uh, for the death of these two students or for the over a hundred wounded or the 40 something uh, missing people that that they were all found recently, so that's good. They think that the main responsibles were the uh, 
105 Congress people that voted in favor of the vacancy or Merino because he was in charge of the presidency. <clears throat> Related to this, um, uh, police reform is going to be how this administration is going to manage the legal and criminal charges against Merino and Flores Arauz. Merino right now is missing, like he found away. We don't know where he is. Um, several human rights organizations presented a, a lawsuit against the Attorney General's office for um, the crimes of homicide, serious injuries and abuse of authority against Merino, Flores Arauz, the interior minister, the head of the Lima police region and the director general of the Peruvian National Police. And an investigation has already been started. So the challenge for this current transitional administration is going to um, allow this investigation to take place and to find a way to punish the responsibles. The United Na Nations is also sending a mission to Peru to investigate the human rights violations. <clears throat> so as we see in this um, survey from Ipsos, um, Manuel Merino and Flores Arauz were extremely unpopular. Um, this is the amount of people that were on in disagreement with uh, their they take in charge. So it was a highly unpopular measure. And the thing is that most people realize and are conscious of the fact that this process of vacancy was not about corruption at all. Like, sure, there may be corruption involved, but this was mainly um, an attempt to take power and an attempt to stop the judici judicial prosecution that were already in place. Now, what else could happen? There is uh, 30 days from, from when um, Celeste assumed the president to um, from when the uh, cabinet was presented um, for the Congress to vote, uh, do the vote of confidence or the investiture, they have to decide whether they trust the new cabinet. If this confidence is denied, the press, uh, the president, sorry, president, the president has to form a new cabinet, and this can happen. Uh, it's not likely, hopefully not likely, but it's possible that in, on December we are going to have to, uh, Sagas is going to have to find new ministers and a new prime minister, and it has happened before. The Congress denied this Congress the same. Uh, Congress people that are in place right now denied the, the vote of confidence for the uh, cabinet of Prime Minister Cateriano. The parties that voted against were Podemos, Unión por el Perú, Prepap, Frente Amplio, which are the same parties, except for the division with Frente Amplio that voted um, against, uh, sorry, in favor of the vacancy. Um, this is the intention. Uh, of both for the election of 2021. And it's kind of interesting how it has not changed much except for declining in many cases. Um, just one thing like, very interesting, like from the first uh, five main candidates, uh, George Forsyth pronounced uh, himself against the vacancy. Julio Guzman did the same. Daniel Resti was against the vacancy, but his party voted almost unanimously in favor. Veronica Mendoza was against the vacancy. Keiko Fujimori was in favor. Um, his, her party voted in favor. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you very much, Viviana. Uh, okay, we have a bit of time uh, for questions. So if you would like to ask a question, I would um, kindly ask that you write it in uh, the chat function. Uh, there was an early question from Mehdi Bayad. Uh, what are the key political forces that had an interest in Vizcarra's removal? Is there any sign that protesters seek his return? Um, so this has been answered in, in part, but maybe would one of you like to address this question? Viviana? Yeah. So. I think that like, one of the main political forces in favor of the agency was Fuerza Popular and the Fujimorismo. Like it's, it's, it's a fun thing to explain to people here in the UK. Like when they ask me like, oh, what, why is this happening? Uh, both with both process of vacancy with the dissolution of Congress, with the police force. And I, I always say like, oh, it's the Fujimorismo's fault. Like everything is the Fujimorismo's fault for now, but really is the Fujimorismo's fault. They were mad that they lost the 2016 election and they've been sabotaging the administration ever since then. They got rid of Saavedra's Minister of Education in 2016, trying to disband the educational reform since then. And it's really surprising how strongly entrenched they are in politics because this uh, Congress was elected supposedly to go against that. This was a Congress that was elected after the dissolution of the Congress that was not letting Vizcarra or did not let uh, Kuczynski work at all. And this is still keep happening. So it's kind of scary. <laughs> okay, thank you. There are a couple of questions that have just come up on the um, constitution of 1993 and whether it's likely uh, that it will be um, changed. Uh, we have a constitutional lawyer here, so maybe we should um, ask him to answer this. Thank you. Um, yes, so I think at this point it is it is undeniable that there will need to be um, big uh, a big overhaul of the entire proven constitution. Um, I think the main issue is what mechanism should be used to, to do this, uh, considering that Peru doesn't really have a solid party system. And um, we keep, you know, electing these congresses that don't really represent the will of, of people. Uh, in fact, there is a, a very big part of, um, of the current Congress that is um, a theocratic party that wants to establish, you know, and have um, uh, Old Testament rules have traditional Andean rules, uh, and that's not what people want. People don't want to go back to the to the Old Testament rules. Um, it's just a matter of votes are not able to express themselves and be repre representative of the population. So there there needs to be um, in terms of how to achieve the changes that the constitution needs, and the constitution needs several changes on on issues of, of um, votes of confidence, on issues of having a senate, on issues of um, uh, this very fact of, of impeachment and, and vacancy, um, among many others. How can we assure that if we are going to um, give life to the to these aspirations of the people, how can we make sure that the process does not end up being uh, a 
backwards looking process. For example, imagine a constitution being drafted by candidates similar to the 105 congressmen that voted for the vacancy. So that is a Congress that would be against like current, the current constitution, even though it is the product of an authoritarian government, is a constitution that does not ban same-sex marriage, it's a constitution that does not fully ban abortion. Um, it is a constitution that has some, uh, that has a, a public ombudsman, has some institutions that need to be preserved. And my concern is that by using procedures like uh, at an election for a constitutional assembly, we might end up with a Congress that does not represent the will of the people that went to the streets and thus end up with a constitution that isn't representative of this will. That is my main concern. I, I think we all agree that the constitution needs changing and needs changes, but the, cha the challenge will be um, and this is where lawyers and political scientists are going to have to talk to each other, how to channel these um, aspirations into actual concrete social change. Would anyone else like to uh, address this question about, about um, constitutional change ahead? No? Okay. Uh, let, let me take another question from the audience from Trevor Warnham. Um, has the question of the constitution, constitutionality of the police protection law 2020 already been raised lodged with the Constitutional Tribunal for decision? Alonso, do you know, or Viviana? I, I am not, I'm not sure, maybe Viviana knows if there's been an actual, you know, a, a claim. Um, I, I do I, know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it has. Um, no, I think that uh, like the idea was to do that, but then it was in March when the law was uh, promulgated, and then the pandemic hit, so everything was put on the stop. I, I know there is a, a campaign by Amnesty International right now to to repeal. Yeah, the after law. the protests. So, yeah. Um, uh, I uh, my my inkling is thinking that uh, there's no actual court case uh, case in court right now, um, but if anything, uh, this. Uh, this requirement, this the, what the police protection law does, is manifestly unconstitutional. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's a question from Thomas Robinson that uh, possibly um, Mercedes can answer. Uh, I was interested if there is any sense of ideological coherence among the protesters. I saw in the photos that Mercedes showed a mix of different symbols from anarchist symbols to crucifixes to national flags. The national flags particularly reminded me of protest movements in Brazil from 2013-14, when nationalist symbols became strongly associated with the Vem para Rua and Movimento Brasil Livre, who presented themselves as anti-corruption movements, but eventually developed into strongly reactionary groups that supported the election of Bolsonaro. Is there a concern that these protests could participate a similar slide into anti-traditional politics popularism? Well, uh... Peruvians use the national flag to, to for everything. I mean, to protest, to march, to, to, to go to a party. I mean, it's, uh, it's not a, a nationalist. Uh, behind this, the using of the, the, the flags, there's not a national, I think it's not a nationalist approach. Uh, for example, I don't know that in the in the land invasions of the 1960s and 1970s, peasants invaded the lands carrying uh, Peruvian flags, and they were just asking the lands. 
and a better treatment. Uh, they were protesting a better, uh, against the Hacendados. So uh, it, it is not in that uh, path. There. And also, I don't believe that at this point, I, I can say, because this is quite new, at this point, I can say that there is not a kind of ideological, uh, ideological uh, a specific uh, thought, a specific kind of ideological issue behind this. I, I, I am feeling of, of watching the videos and watching the protests and listening to the interview protesters that they are kind of, uh, uh, they kind of, they are kind of tired. I think it's an, a primary reaction to this, uh, this way that the politicians have behaved during the last years. So as I also suggest in my presentations, I don't know in what extent the pandemic has um, highlighted these feelings. It's something that we have to dig in a bit more. And also, also, I would like to, to comment on the previous question about if these protesters were seeking or asking the, the return of, of Iskara, they won't, they weren't. Uh, they were, they were, uh, they weren't, weren't asking the, the return of Iskara. They were against, I think, I feel, they were against the way in which Iskara was destitute. They were against in the way in which the Political power, the political parties in the Congress perform, perform uh, this, how they perform this cup, uh, thinking in their own interest. I think that they, they were the motives, the main motives. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have a question from Eva Willems. Uh, what will happen now to Vizcarra's anti-corruption agenda and how do you assess the probability of actual reforms being moved forward after the elections? And secondly, how do you see the likelihood of a protracted protest movement driven by youth? Um, so about the first part of the question, um, I think that that's going to be very discussed in the next few weeks, especially because this whole thing started uh, because of a filtration by the um, especially special team uh, Lavajato in Peru. They filtrated these reports that said that Vizcarra had received money when he was um, uh, governor in Moquegua. And the thing is, like this is not the first time this happens with the Lavajato team. There has been a lot of filtrations, and we never complained because they were filtrations that were against Fujimori or against Toledo or against Garcia. We were like, yeah, they deserve. But when this happened, um, the Congress took this filtration as a tool for the vacancy, even though we all knew it was not about corruption. Uh, it kind of puts in the limelight the legitimacy of how this team is proceeding. Uh, the Lavallato team has a lot of legitimacy and I think it's very well deserved because they have been the team that has been moving this anti-corruption investigation in the country. But this type of strategies uh, are going to come into, into question, especially after all that has happened right now. Um, actually, one of the questions that Ipsos asked uh, in their survey yesterday was about that. And they did consider that there was a degree of responsibility towards the Lavallato team for allowing this filtration. So I think that whether this uh, anti-corruption agenda can uh, will uh, sur survives in the 
in the next few years and into the next government is going to depend a lot on both how the Lavajato team acts during this transitional period and who gets selected in April. Mm -hmm. uh, Rafael, do you want to, to come in on this perhaps? Uh, the question about the uh, youth movement, does it have a future? Yeah, yeah, well, my guess is the yes. So the short answer is yes. So I guess youth are really fed up of the whole situation and, and we, I'm, I'm quite optimistic of, of the potential reaction is, is just how they manage to be organized in a, in a peaceful way. And I think um, like link with the previous question of more like a like space for a more authoritarian candidate i i don't i don't like reject completely that option i i hope for the country that that's not going to happen but uh, so yeah there are many many policies that you can implement for for avoiding that route but i think yes it's like you are playing a big role in this movement and it's quite likely that like yeah it's going to be an enlargement of the protest moved by them okay thank you uh there is a question from Christian Fitzhugh, uh, which is quite similar to the one that was just, just asked about the implications of this cadre's removal for the anti-corruption drive. Um, so I'll, I, if, if you'll allow me, Christian, I'll, I will uh, skip that. Um, then a question from Kenneth Sanchez for Alonso. Uh, this is the scoop that you were telling me about, uh, Alonso. Do you, do you want to, to address this? Uh, the Constitutional Tribunal has just ruled the demand about the moral incapacity in precedent. It did sustracción de la materia. Do you think there's a threat of the Congress using this figure once again to uh, impeach or vacate Sagasti? And does this fuel the demand for a new constitution? So th this has been basically my my week, like me talking and all of a sudden things changing while I talk. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so while we were talking, the, this uh, ponencia, this, this, major, this opinion that was circulating by, by the main uh, rapporteur of the case, uh, Justice Ledesma, has been um, voted down by the conservative majority of um, the Constitutional Tribunal, uh, four versus three. Um, the argument being that since, sustracción de la materia, meaning that since there is no longer a case because the first um, the first uh, vacancy procedure, which is what would cost this, uh, is no longer a thing. It didn't it didn't prosper, and because now uh, uh, we are in a second um, vacancy, there's no real case for us to for the tribunal to decide. Um, Ledesma's um, opinion was on the contrary, uh, seeking to declare the 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 claim um, to uh, valid like to to side with the claim and say and regulate um, the vacancy procedure so now uh, we, we go back to square one i i was not expecting this um even with the conservative majority because of the the pressure that might come from from the streets um but um so i think we need this does fuel a little bit more the idea that the constitution of 1993 just is not really up to date. I think mo many people will will take this as yet another failure of Peruvian constitutionalism. Um, 
and my fear stands on on how to change those those uh how, how to achieve those aspirations in practice now one thing that uh, the sagasti government could do is uh, to file a bill uh, regulating how to do this um but it is doubtful that this Congress would approve it. So um, we really, we really, uh, this is really disappointing because it means that we go back to square one. And yes, potentially another Congress could uh, do the same thing all over again. Okay, thank you. Uh, a question from from George uh, Glynn uh, regarding the discussion that uh, Rafael um, developed around higher education and. Uh, an open question, uh, what would be an effective way to involve the youth in the nation's future? How can the youth be effectively represented in government? Uh, Mercedes or Rafael, perhaps, can, do you want to? Yeah, I, I probably would say that it is, I think that this last um, survey of the Instituto de Estudios Peruanos said that the interest of young people in politics has increased. So probably in the future, uh, it is going to be possible to find more young people in political parties and doing politics. So this is, a, this is going to be a very interesting issue to observe and to, to research in, in them. Yeah, Rafael? Yeah, just to complement on that. So uh, I think all the protests now has, has empowered quite a lot young people. So. The, when the, the, pro, the protests started, like, there were many people from the opposition saying that there were just few people protesting and, and they tried to minimize everything. So as we know now, everything changed. And, and I guess uh, the fact that youth were like claimed as being the, the responsible for the final outcome of the protest may empower, empower them. The fact that the the party where Sagasti, the new president, come from, have included many young people in, in their in, as, as their like people in the parliament are, are quite important. There are two very interesting candidates, De Belaunde and Olivares, and they are I think they are really good representatives of a new generation of, of Peruvians. Uh, is how we we sort of channel this like this super nice uh, like strongness so it's, it's how we can do these people to 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 work on their ideas and i think that's that's really like difficult social media can play a big role uh, and that's like my guess is that parties are, are gonna be starting looking more at what people talk through those channels thank you okay uh, a final question from maria victoria corno uh, my question is regarding the disconnection between Congress and proven citizens. Would any of the speakers agree that perhaps checks and balances in the proven government have become too strong, hence insulate the legislative power? Would re reform of the political system enable better communication between the legislative and the executive Congress and the people? Uh, Viviana, do you maybe want to take this? Sure, I am not entirely sure. Like, I don't think check and balance is the issue right now. Like. I think the big thing uh, in Peru from 2016 until now is that there was uh, a strong, vengeable opposition in Congress. And there has always been minority governments in Peru because we don't have an established party system. So the government party usually doesn't have a majority in Congress and the parties in Congress are usually very divided. Um, 
not ideologically, but because they're very different groups of, of people with different party affiliations. Um, we govern by coalition, by joining forces and by creating bancadas and things like that. And that has worked. I mean, it's not the ideal scenario, but was working from 2001 until 2016 with ups and downs. But this whole um, process of I'm going to start a vacancy process and an investigation, I'm going to try and uh, uh, put uh, the um, motion of uh, the vote of confidence for the cabinet. And if you don't pick, uh, you don't vote in favor of two cabinets, then I can close the Congress. This uh, push and pull between the Congress and the legislative is something that I think is relatively new. And I think it's mostly because of the kind of opposition that we've been seeing in the past few years, that is less of, I want to do something or stay in place or stay in power and more like, I want to take you out of power. And I think it's been way more selfish in the past few years. Not that it hasn't been selfish before, but it's more having to be right now. Okay, I think uh, that's uh, not, not a particularly optimistic point at which to end, but, but we have to end anyway. Uh, and it sounds like things are certainly not um, reaching any kind of conclusion from what we've just heard. So we'll have to watch um, watch this space. But I really want to uh, thank the, the all four speakers for wonderful presentations and for helping us to think through this very complex uh, process. And also to thank all of you for joining us uh, this evening. Uh, please uh, keep... Uh, 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 have a look at our website. There'll be more events coming up uh, coming up down the line. Thank you all uh, and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.